Hello everyone, hope everybody's doing well. I um, decided I wanted to do this podcast on the, well, (laughs) on the election, but also not on the election. That's kind of why I've titled this, To Trump or Not to Trump. Is that the question? So I'm questioning whether that is really the question that we as Christians should be most concerned about. Um, I confess that I've been making that probably a real point of worry and and anxiety and uh, just somewhat stressing about it, praying about it, and I think we must take our duty to, um, well, vote seriously. Um, And I think that it is... um, Certainly for us not to vote would have to be pretty dire circumstances, and maybe that's the situation that we're in. Um, But I don't want to get bogged down in that. That's kind of my point, is to ask the question, is this the question? Is this where we should be placing our greatest concern on? And before you think, oh, you know, Thomas is just going to say our number one answer is Jesus, and Jesus is king, no matter who's president, Christ is Lord, and... Well, that's true, and I absolutely believe that, and I've said that multiple times on Facebook and elsewhere during the election, Um, but, you know, something my my, um, pastor has mentioned, and I've definitely been thinking about, and in the last couple months and maybe a year or two really uh, have begun to realize, probably especially in the last six months or so, is that we don't want to undervalue the role of our leaders in God's plan, in God's purpose, that they are there by God's authority to execute justice and vengeance and indeed to govern um, nations and people and including Christians. And on the other hand, we don't want to look to this institution of of government and uh, our leaders as Christ, because they're certainly not. So, they're important, they're, they are instit- instituted by God, but they're not ultimate, and Christ is, and that is an incredible comfort. But how do you flesh that out? How do you work through the layers of this thing in voting for Trump, or not voting for Trump, voting third party, not voting third party, so on and so forth? How do you flesh that out, for one, and then beyond that, is this really, no matter who we vote for or who wins, what does it matter given the state of our nation and the direction we're going um, just morally, spiritually, and so on? Just today I was looking at a um, some research and a graphic and so on that uh, I believe Ligonier had put out in conjunction with Lifeway Research or... Uh, I believe that's who did it, but it talks about just, you know, how many evangelicals, self-described evangelicals, um, you know, think they can contribute to their own salvation. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like, you know, half, maybe, somewhere in that range, and many thought that maybe it was half or close to it also, that um, Christ, uh, or the Bible, I should say, was not 
inspired by God, or that it was, but that science kind of shows errors in the Word of God as being inspired, and and many other questions that this shows a real bankruptcy of Christianity, that, that really these people aren't Christians. They call themselves evangelicals, but they trust in themselves, at least in part, for salvation. They think that science and other things rule over God and His Word. Um, you know, thankfully, those who went to church or said they went to church weekly rather than just a couple times a month or less, um, those who were regular attenders were much more, well, biblical and, you know, far more likely to be genuinely Christian. And I've said in another podcast, I think that we need to really reach out to those who are Christians but have a weak uh, theology, a weak faith, or maybe they're strong in the faith but they've been in a stream of uh, a denomination or just a church that is not very strong theologically, and they're looking for stronger answers. They're looking for more meat from the Word. You know, how can we reach out and find that? I think this is the broader question, because I think our own churches are taking on so much water. I did a recent, relatively recent podcast a couple months ago, a month ago, something like that, on... um, the PCA and the problems in the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, I said some things in there and later on Facebook that one um, elder, pastor in particular, flat out contradicted me saying that I was, well, just wrong. Um, and that my way of representing some things about uh, certain Presbytery and many of the ruling elders and pastors' view on allowing an unrepentant homosexual uh, to be a member of the church there, that I was just mischaracterizing what was happening there. While I was not mischaracterizing what was happening there, I was sitting there and listening to the whole thing, and then had, with um, a group of elders from the church that I was serving as a ruling elder at, we sat down with one of the guys who led this discussion for like four hours, and everything that I thought was confirmed in that, and this other pastor who said I was mistaken, well, he wasn't at that four-hour discussion, so I'm afraid he's mistaken. Um, why I say all that? Well, because, yeah, that's frustrating that this stuff is not being seen for what's really going on in the PCA. That's the best spin I can put on that. The worst spin is that people don't want this to get out of what's being said and done in the PCA. But the PCA is taking on water. You know, this is supposed to be a reformed strongly, staunchly reformed, Presbyterian, solid denomination. And I don't doubt that there's still many solid churches in the PCA and perhaps some Presbyterians that are, on the whole, pretty solid. But I think, you know, that's, you're going to see it shatter very soon. So we're, we're, we're having issues in our own reform circles in some ways. So I think as the nation is going to have to declare itself, those who are Christians, those who are, and I think our denominations are going to have to do, to do the same. Are we going to compromise with the world and culture? Are we going to go liberal and, and deny Christ, essentially? Um, or are we going to follow the straight and narrow path? And um, I think the PCA is doomed to uh, a split, and in some ways I think the better that the PCA, the sooner the PCA can declare itself, the better, so that those who are truly conservative and and convicted to um, stand fast on the Word of God and the truth revealed to the saints, that they would be able to form, gather, and 
find a way to get us out of uh, the mess that we are in in this nation. And of course, by getting out, I don't mean that we are sovereign. God is. And if God wills that we never survive as a nation, then we won't. Um, but my point in all of this is that we need to think as Christians in the long term how we can steer in a better direction. And I did come across something called the Benedict Option. And this is something which you should Google. What is the Benedict Option? Look it up. Um, I mean, there's much to discuss about it, and I've only recently seen this, and I don't know by any means the ins and outs of it, but it's kind of following, in a very loose sense, uh, Benedict's... um, rules or order for his uh, monastic way of life that he implemented and basically trying to create a modernized modern day version of that as the Roman Empire and um, other well the culture in his day (laughs) was uh, fading and falling into darkness and denying any truth of God Uh, Benedict formed you know his own little community, and they were aggressive in translating scripture and other things, but also they uh, worked hard, they had a strong bond with other Christians, Uh, they studied doctrine, and they kind of preserved sanity and culture through the darkness, the dark, you know, generation there, and, um, you know, when when the sun kind of dawned again many years later, um, hey, lo and behold, there's still culture to be had and, and Christianity and, and truth to be found because of, uh, you know, the eth- efforts of Benedict and others. Well, you know, that was probably a really sloppy presentation and uh, hopefully I got all the facts on that right. But uh, the point is that we need to be looking long-term generationally like that as well. Um, how can we form more robust Christians? Um, how can we take those in this nation, I believe there's still many who are genuinely regenerate, born again, but have been starved spiritually from weak and shallow churches, even ones that are can be called Christians. Many, I'm afraid, are weak and shallow, compromised. And, and it's true, every generation, we're always going to have a mix of, of, you know, more more or less pure churches. I understand that. I'm not saying that we're ever going to have a perfect church. But I'm talking about we're, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide, and we're glutted with goats in our churches. And for those true Christians, they're being brought down by churches softening the hard edges of doctrine. And it's the hard edges that the Spirit most uses to pierce our hard hearts and to grow us as Christians. So you're blunting the Word and its impact, and thereby blunting um, the spirit, the sword of the spirit. And and so we have to winsomely in love, but with passion present the full riches of God's word, of his truth, of his sovereignty, of his saving power and saving grace, and that it can transform our lives. And that yes, indeed, we are sin sick, enslaved to sin, but through Christ we can actually be supernaturally lifted from death, resurrected spiritually, and also brought out of the shackles, this enslavement that we have to sin. Um, 
And then building from there, just what is God doing in history, understanding the covenants, understanding God's unfolding plan of redemption, um, seeing how the Trinity, and there's some Trinitarian controversies swirling right now, but seeing how the Trinity relates to practical issues like transgenderism and gay marriage and understanding the, the importance of getting the unity and the diversity and the unified diversity of the Trinity right to understand God's nature and character and the order of all things and how he's wired society and government and marriage and the family. Um, and I'm not talking about any kind of eternal subordination or anything like that. Uh, I'm just saying that in God uh, there is a Trinity which we don't even think about oftentimes, and evangelicals just kind of say, well, yeah, the Trinity, whatever that means, and moves on. So I'm, I'm just, I understand I'm kind of rambling, but getting a robust understanding of God, I mean, going back to our creeds and just understanding, you know, what was the Chalcedonian, uh, you know, definition or formulation, what what are we talking about there? Why does that matter? You know, I'm getting to teach this in omnibus to students, and you know, even the students there can be like, well, you know, this is a mystery, or what? what is the value of this? But then I try to drive it home for them, you know, hey, this plays into, you know, why gay marriage is wrong. Well, you know, what is Christ and the church? What is marriage? A picture of Christ and the church, you know, Christ and the church, that bond there, real sense is a reflection of the bond between the Father and the Son, in the spirit eternally, and that love spills over. And, you know, my point is that you can connect these things and see the economy of God as bearing on the economy of man made in the image of God in the family and society and all that. And so, you know, we have a grounds for gender roles. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that if we can just spat out the right theology that, you know, non-believers are just going to fall over and say, okay, well then, you know, I understand why Christians are adverse to uh, gay marriage and transgenderism and, and saying that there are such a thing as male and female and that you can't get rid of that. I understand that unbelievers are just going to make fun of that, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that we shouldn't argue for that, that we should defend the truth, that we shouldn't argue that, you know, absolute objective truth exists only because God exists and press uh, that just the baseline um, thinking and how we can even have laws of thought without God, which we can't, just pressing that in on unbelievers and having a real robust apologetic defense of the faith as well as a defense of the Trinitarian, really you can't defend the faith without defending the Trinitarian God of Christianity and of the God-man Jesus Christ. And so defending that for our own churches, defending that to the world and showing how that applies to all these debates today and telling them, look, you're doomed for destruction because you're running from God. You're going to reap his judgment. He's going to give you over to your own dark, darkened thoughts, which we're already seeing. And that is the judgment. And so now our sin is going to run amok and we're going to really see, indeed, the wages of sin is death. And that doesn't just mean hell. That doesn't just mean physically dying. It means a long, slow, agonizing torment as we fall over the cliff and down to the abyss into darkness. And it's a slow bleeding out um, of our whole nation and culture. Um, we need to get a robust 
idea and understanding of the kingdom of God, and that when we pray, that will be done, the kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we as the temple of God, the body of Christ, the church, must stand for the kingdom of God, must see ourselves as citizens and soldiers in his kingdom and prioritize that. In other words, I'm just saying we need to be Christians. We need to be faithful. We need to know the word, defend it, live for it. It needs to be faith working through love, ministering to the body of Christ. And that is um, why I opened this with to Trump or not to Trump. Is that the question? In other words, say we decide we should vote for Trump. Say he wins. Say uh, he is in there for eight years. Say he's you know nominates all the Supreme Court justices that we hope that he would, that he opposes abortion, that he tidies up our economic budget, uh, so on and so forth. Well, what is he not going to do? Well, apart from the regenerating work of God, he's going to continue to be a moral scumbag, right? And be full of himself, exceedingly prideful, rude. Um, you don't know if he's going to launch nukes and, you know, wipe out half the the um, planet, which sadly I think some conservative Republicans would be all for that. Um you don't know what you're going to get with this guy. He's a loose cannon. And the scary thing is that a lot of people supporting him, they're loose cannons. This is just, you know, the image of themselves that they get to nominate into office. Now, I know some voting for Trump don't love all this, these aspects of him. And they're doing it because they feel like the alternative is even nastier of Hillary Clinton. And look, on balance, I tend to agree with that, absolutely, that Trump will not be as bad as Clinton. Now, I say that with the caveat of if he goes and starts another world war, then I think all of us can agree that that is not going to be what we <laughs> need uh, right now or ever. So, I'm not talking about a defensive just war. I'm talking about Trump just going out there and, and you know, somebody challenges his authority, so he decides to go kill them all. Um, you know, you can laugh and scoff and say that, you know, Trump would never do that, and that's just you know, exaggeration or um, being mindlessly fearful, but I don't know. I don't know. Just like I don't know if Clinton is, is putting the hit out on people for sure or not, I don't know what Trump may or may not do, right? He, he is, we're in unprecedented territory to some extent with Trump, and with a candidate like him, with an attitude like him, with an ego like his, I don't know. But again, my question is, even if Trump gets in, what, you know, real benefit? Is Trump going to be our savior? Is Trump going to usher in the kingdom of God? Is Trump going to advocate for Christian virtue and value and truth? No, he's not. If there's a superficial level where he may have some external agreements with us on issues, maybe, to some extent, such as abortion, maybe, um, okay, great, praise God, but is his heart behind it? No, his heart is in it for himself. I mean, he is morally far more expressing of his sinful nature than most unbelievers, I would dare say, in, in, in many ways. So that's not going to reflect well. You know, a friend of mine mentioned that, you know, we're not voting for a candidate, you know, on a character issue, a moral issue, or, or I should say, for the character of the president on his morals, we're voting for 
policies, we're voting for principles, so on and so forth. And and in general, I agree. But but what I would say, in in partial, um, you know, maybe slight disagreement is that you can't divorce the morals of a man from the principles of a man. You know, you can't divorce those two things. They may not be identical. There may be some certainly internal conflict. Trump may put in better policies than he is a human being. But I, I don't know if I would bank on it. And, and you know, the morals matter is what I'm trying to say. And so I don't know. I've been pretty loudly against Trump, and I still am. But for one reason in particular, I'm at least opening and keeping open the door of voting for Trump. And that is because here in North Carolina, where... What I've read is that we have the most restricted ballot access or even write-in access. I think the only candidates eligible that I can even vote for are going to be Trump, Clinton, and I guess maybe Gary Johnson. And the only option for me at all would be Trump. And, um, you know, because of abortion with Gary Johnson in particular, I just can't do that. That's murder. So... I was hoping to vote for Daryl Castle. It looks like almost certainly he will not be even eligible as a write-in. So if you can't vote for anybody else, I'm left with no one or Trump. And then the question is, if I happen to believe that Trump wouldn't be as damaging, such as for the reasons I think particularly of nominating Supreme Court justices that could be better than Clinton, do I have an obligation to do that? Can I do that? I don't have the answer yet. I think this is going to go down to the wire for me, and I'm saying it may also for you. Um, Ted Cruz came out in support of Trump. If you look at his six reasons, I think those are the six strongest reasons to vote for Trump. I think Doug Wilson on his blog, you can look at his response to Cruz, and I think that's the strongest reasons for still not voting for Trump, which it does goes back in part to the morals of Trump or the lack thereof. But again, at the end of the day... Um, even if Trump gets in and does go six for six on those things, our nation as a whole wanted this man. And if they didn't want him, they wanted Clinton. And these include those who are professing to be Christians. The numbers who even profess to be Christians are going down at a pretty fairly rapid rate. So I'm saying, so what? If Trump gets in, guys, for even eight years, so what? At best, it is... There are 50 holes in the dam that we need to plug. If Trump plugged five of them, first of all, I might create another 10, but putting that aside, even if you plugged five of them, the other 45 are still going to get us. Right? This is going to get worse before it gets better, whether it's Trump or Clinton. We need to think in terms of decades and perhaps even generations. Right? I want my children to be able to go to college without fear of being imprisoned or, um, you know, getting shot and killed, or at least even having access to college, <laughs> you know, other than Christian colleges. I want there to still be Christian colleges. I'm not so gloom and doom that I don't think that there will be come, you know, 15 years, 20 years from now. But I am you know, sufficiently, I think, a realist to realize that there could be some serious restrictions and, and hardships come, well, sooner than that. You know, just give it a couple years. And even if you say, well, that's why you need to vote for Trump. Well, if Trump gets in and delays that 
to some extent for four or eight years, again, praise God. And maybe that buys us a little more time. And maybe if he puts in some better justices, maybe, then that would, for the upcoming next 40 years or however long these justices would live to be on there, help. And I think that is the one strongest argument for Trump is because of the Supreme Court justices. And that's what gives me the most conundrum in my heart of should I vote for Trump? That and the fact that I literally can't vote for anybody else. No one's going to even count as my vote. I can't even you know, make a protest of my candidate by voting third party here. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have to look at the long term, is what I'm trying to say. The Benedict option seems to provide some, at least fodder for thinking things through. Um, and that's where I'm at. And I'm saying the question is not ultimately to Trump or not to Trump, to vote for Trump or to not vote for Trump. Not because this is utterly unimportant. It does have some weight. So we should pray about this and think about this deeply and carefully. And for those, I'm trying to speak to those who are saying, who are Christians, who are saying, oh, you have to vote for Trump. How could you think anything else? Trump's our only hope. Because I'm saying, well, you're in error. But I'm also trying to say to those who are Christians who say, you know, I don't have to vote. I don't have to think about voting. You know, if my candidate doesn't believe exactly what I believe, then I'm not going to vote for them or vote for anybody and that's fine because Jesus is still king, yada, yada, yada. God is still sovereign. Well, yeah, God is still sovereign. He works through means, and these means are clearly ordained in Scripture ordinarily by government, right? Secular government, which really isn't secular in one sense because it's under God, under God's will and authority. So I'm trying to speak to both sides there, and I want to admit that, you know, depending on my mood or the time of day, I'm pretty close to one side or the other, and I'm swinging like a wild pendulum back and forth, and I'm trying to be more biblical, use more wisdom, try to see through these things, and think through these things. Um, but I would like to see, and I'm thankful for some of these like Christian schools, classical Christian schools that I have been able to teach at. I want to see more of those pop up. We need to find ways to um, get the parents of these students on board, which again really goes back to having more good, faithful, biblical churches, which goes back to some of the denominational issues, even in the PCA and the church planning issues, which are pretty rough, I think, in the PCA, at least when it's sanctioned and funded, I, I should say funded by the PCA and, and, and so on. We have to examine ourselves as a church, as denominations. We have to examine ourselves and see if we are handling things as best and as well as we could be. We need to think about tithing more. We need to think about, you know, what what can we create? What environments of cultural, Christian culture can we create amongst ourselves, but also to be touch points in the community? So I'm talking about Christian bookstores, uh, you know, Christian Bible institutes, Bible colleges. It doesn't have to be, you know, as glorious as Reformation Bible College where I went. It can be more small scale. It's going to be probably because we just don't have the money, you know. Um, what else can we do? I have a friend who's getting to help out at a uh, crisis pregnancy center with other Christians there who are, um, sounds like genuine Christians, but charismatic and more Arminian and probably, you know, not super deep theologically. Jesse's, my friend Jesse's already having opportunities to uh, reach out and kind of 
in a loving way talk and converse with these um, men and women about their Christian faith and their doctrine and, and already making them think, and that's great. You know, these people already have willing hearts, and maybe their their theology can be caught up. And obviously, my friend Jesse's getting to minister to men and women who are, you know, have contemplated aborting their children because this is right across from a Planned Parenthood. I mean, these these things of speaking at abortion mills. I mean, it, it is really the most wise, I think, way. If we're going to do street preaching, and I think there's certainly a place for that, and. You know, the way I see that done a lot of times, I kind of get a little uncomfortable with. Maybe it's not my personality. It may not be my strongest gifting. Um, but done in a good way, or maybe even a way that, you know, I don't fully love, but still a way that's genuine and faithful. It's such a wonderful thing, because not only do you have the chance to literally save physical human baby babies' lives in the womb, but it's a perfect lead-in to keeping up contact with this family that keeps the baby because now you get to find ways to show Christian love to provide for these babies and these families. Financially, um, maybe with literal food and shelter, uh, these crisis pregnancy centers. And obviously that puts flesh on the gospel that, you know, not my favorite phrasing, but incarnates our faith or like puts it into action. It's faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6. It's caring for others, you know, to the least of these, and in this case, even unbelievers. But it gives an opportunity to keep up contact with them rather than just kind of shotgun blasting, you know, out in the middle of a park with different people that come by each day that you may or may not even ever see again. Um, this creates an opportunity to have real lasting bonds and relationships and actually to see people perhaps in God's providence more likely be converted and save lives spiritually and physically. So those things are awesome. Um, our church does that. I know a guy named John Barrows, who many may be familiar with down in uh, Orlando. It's, it's great. We need more of that kind of stuff. We need to use the gifts that we have, the convictions that we have, and we need to go out and serve. I know another guy uh, at, um, oh, I think it's Methodist University, who is a president of a, I think, an apologetics, Christian apologetics group or chapter out there. We need that. We need, again, defending and contending it for the faith. We've kind of failed in preserving it, so now we've got to reclaim it within the church, but also to the world. We must contend for it and defend it, so we need apologetics. We, we just need to be mobilizing our Christianity more and more and more. And, you know, if I can put my finger on one thing that needs to change, it needs to be this thin and weak and watery understanding of the gospel. And I'm talking about, uh, you know, even Reformed Calvinistic circles where we say, well, the gospel is just the five points of Calvinism, or the gospel is you know, that I'm totally dead in my sins, I can do nothing to save myself, but Christ has saved me and forgiven me, and that was predestined, and I was elect, and there's elect, and there's non-elect, and there's a reprobate, and if you believe in that and sign off on that and really get excited and pumped about that, that that is the fullness of the riches of the gospel. Well, it's a heck of a lot better than, than what a lot of churches go to, but the gospel is the good news that the kingdom is here, that the kingdom is at hand, that Christ has brought that 
in a inaugural sense, in a not yet consummated sense, but truly and really brought that in here and near us and in us because we are now the temple of God, the body of Christ, to get kingdom-minded, to see that, okay, the kingdom of God, that is the good news. And that goes beyond personal, individual, getting out of hell, salvation, but it's salvation in a much more robust and comprehensive sense. And people get scared because they think, well, are you talking about prosperity gospel type stuff? Are you talking about, you know, uh, charismatic Pentecostal casting out demons kind of stuff? Well, not, not really. I mean, there's a truth in which we have authority over demons and that we, you know, if we seek first the kingdom of God, he'll provide for our physical needs. Not going to get Lamborghinis necessarily, but we're going to be provided for. But what I am saying is that we inherit the earth, that Christ is ruling and reigning now, that we need to seek to implement truth, God's truth, which is truth. It's redundant to say God's truth. It's true truth. <laughs> um, in our society, in our culture, to live in light of that. And I'm not talking about like a full-blown theonomy. I, I guess in a sense I'm talking about a Christian reconstruction, but not not the way that that's been painted. But, you know, the way our confession puts, you know, the general equity, applying the law in our nation, in our culture, in our lives, that has a big part of it. But infiltrating everything that we do, our work, no matter whether we're a garbage man or a doctor or a business owner or a baker or, you know, whatever, seeing that, too, as bringing and an extension and, in a sense, part of the kingdom of God because we're Christians and wherever we go, the kingdom is there because Christ is in us and we can serve God faithfully even through our job and our work and to exercise dominion and to fill it and to do that all in such a way where we are being salt and light to the world. And it's most easy to picture and understand doing that from the towers of our churches and they must be stronger and they must be bulwarks but we are still foot soldiers everywhere we go. And seeing that, that we're always on call, if you will, that we are always called to manifest, make manifest the rule and the glory of God and the kingdom in some sense. And I'm not saying I know all the ways to perfectly do that, but to do that and to be thinking about how to do that and being mindful of that, that's, I'm trying to say that's something deeper than what we've stripped the gospel down to, which is just personal salvation. We're saved unto good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. We're saved unto service and the upbuilding, the building up of one another, of Christ's body, and the building up of the kingdom. And it's like a small mustard tree, mustard seed that grows into a great tree. It, it transforms, it should be transforming, hearts, and as hearts are transformed, it transforms our whole lives, it transforms, therefore, our work, the workplace, possibly, if God wills to really work in hearts of others, our economics, our politics, our governing, it transforms our art, our culture, and all echoes and praise to God. Now, you may think, well, you're just an, an over-optimistic post-millennialist. I, I don't know what I am es eschatologically. I do know 
that the post-millennial vision, uh, you know, is what we should be striving for, I think. You know, we should be striving to see God's glory in every sphere, because it's all His, and the kingdom is here now. And, and we cannot fail to see that. That's the gospel that we've been entrusted with. That is what we are to pursue. You know, we, we tend to have this idea, I think, that, well, once there's at least one person who professes Christ in every nation, then Christ will come back. Well, I think the scripture makes clear that the leaven of the gospel, the good growth and transformation that it produces, means that every nation, the king's, so that would indicate at least a church, a healthy, vibrant church, at least one in every nation, will be glorifying God. And I think, you know, really what we're looking at here is is something that Christianity has an impact in each nation in a measurable, tangible way. Now, I, I tend to think there's still going to be a lot of resistance, a lot of unbelief, a lot of hostility, that there probably will never be a time where the majority of people on the earth um, are Christians, but my goodness, if we had 40% of the of the world population strong, robust Christians, that would mean every nation would be pretty heavily impacted um, by Christianity. And I don't, I really don't know if there's ever a time, except maybe super early on, but certainly in the last uh, about 250 years, 200 years? I don't know. Where, where even in the United States, there's been a majority of people who were genuinely born again. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. But my guess would be that many more, just as today, maybe probably not as bad as today, but many who claim to be Christians back then still weren't. I'm talking about, you know, where it is close to half of people in the nations really professing Christ. I mean, I I don't know what the numbers are going to be. I can't make any dogmatic statements on that. But I do see the scriptures indicating that the kings of nations will bring their glory in and there will be greater and greater love for God and that we're building towards that. And yes, there's going to continue to be opposition and terrorism and a sense in which we're always going to have to fear for our lives from some evil dictator that could spring up. I don't think as many, I guess, super duper optimistic postmodernists may there's going to be this golden age where that's never going to be a possibility again. There's going to be an extended period before Christ returns again where it's like, you know, 90% of the people are Christians or even more and you have to like look under a rock to find an unbeliever or something. Okay, I, that'd be great, but I don't, I don't know if the scripture promises that, but I do see growth, sustained growth, and that the gospel is that the kingdom is here, that the kingdom has come. And, and, and come on, the kingdom, the new Jerusalem... All this is what we're striving for, for heaven, for the will of God to be done on earth as it is done in heaven, for the perfection and glory of heaven to be approximated in every sphere and every level as much as possible here on earth. That's our calling, that's our task, that's the gospel. That will have tangible success in every nation. That's what we've got to be striving for, not just this sort of you know, lifeboat theology that we get saved and we, you know, wait to either be struck down or to be martyred or persecuted and, and to wear that as a badge of honor, which we should, done rightly, understood rightly, but we should also seek 
for a society where the martyrs are no more because peace and righteousness reigns and love for one another reigns because society has been so impacted by the kingdom of God because the society has become so Christian. That's what I'm getting at. I think the Benedict option can be a means to that. I think that we got to look beyond this election to these aspirations. And that is something which, as you know, is going to be further and further realized long after we're dead and gone. But we have a part, our generation. God works generation to generation. I think hopefully we recognize that, even if you're not Presbyterian. (laughs) But of course he does, because each generation comes up and they become adults and their minds are fully developed and they're the ones that are able-bodied and you know the movers and shakers in society and those are the ones who are working and have power for good or ill. Um, we need to look at our generation and the upcoming generation and to see how we can impact that for the glory of God. It's got to start with stronger churches. It's got to start with more healthy ways of whatever you want to call it, evangelizing, and realizing that evangelism isn't just personal salvation, but it's the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And also, frankly, to realize that, you know, ordinarily you don't just come up to some Joe Schmo in the street who's homeless and, uh, you know, tell him about Jesus, and all of a sudden he falls on his face and is converted and, you know, goes on to be um, a professor at, at Westminster Seminary or something like that. You know, that conversion... God usually works in such a way where we have to pour ourselves into somebody in multiple conversations, maybe over multiple months or years and and many times, to see Christ formed in them. I mean, Paul prays for churches and says that, you know, in the Bible, he says, I can't remember which epistle, obviously, but, you know, I labor with birth pangs until Christ is formed in you. He's saying that about churches that, you know, he's involved with, involved with planting and overseeing and shepherding. Pastors, you have to see your congregation as those needing Christ. And in some situation, they need Christ formed in them. And that means for those who are in the church that aren't believers to be saved and converted, but also for Christ to be further and further and further formed in those who are Christians. If that's true of the church, how much more for those who we seek to win to Christ and to his kingdom? We need a robust view of the gospel, of evangelism, of missions, that it's the kingdom of God. That it's calling us not into me and Jesus and nobody else forever and ever, amen, but to the kingdom, to the body of Christ, right? We've come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly city. Right? The souls of the righteous made perfect. And the rest of that, that glorious passage says in Hebrews that I, I can't think of. You know, That is what we need to be looking at and saying, you know what? In some sense, God is calling us now to do all that we can, as much as we can as Christians, to labor to see that on earth as it is in heaven. Knowing we can't usher in the kingdom of God in fullness, that Christ must do that, that even as we strive and labor now, whatever advances take place, we are the means, but the power is God, the Spirit, the converting power of God, working in us and working in others, that we are just tools, that all the glory goes to God, Even our faithfulness, he gets the glory for because of his spirit working in us, because of his love, because of his mercy, because of the minds that he's given us, because he made us in his image, and so on and so forth. But just the same, we will be rewarded in heaven graciously 
by God for how we live now. I want heaven to be full of the glory of God. I want to look back on my life when I'm dead <laughs> uh, and in heaven and say, you know what? I really strived to love my wife, to love my kids, to raise them to serve God, to impact as many people as I could for Christ and his kingdom. I tried to be a faithful soldier. You know, I want Christ to say to me, this is so trite, and I don't always like it, but I want Christ, I want, in some sense, <laughs> basked in the forgiveness of Christ and his blood to cover all my imperfections, but in some sense, for Christ to say, well done, to say that at some level I had some faithfulness, some backbone, some love for Christ, some love for his kingdom, and not myself. And that's the vision we need. So to trump or not to trump, that does matter. That, that is a question, but it's not the question. How are we going to pursue God's kingdom to the next generation? That's the ultimate question. I pray that you think about that. Thank you for listening.